This Week in Startups is brought to you by ChartHop. Growing your company is hard. Planning for it doesn't have to be. Visualize your company's future in seconds with ChartHop. Get $600 in credits, which will cover your first five employees, by signing up at charthop.com slash twist today. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of software that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Your first app is free forever, and right now Odoo is offering $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com slash twist. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twist. And... Squarespace. Turn your idea into a new website. Go to squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code twist to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. We are starting 2021 off with friend of the show, brilliant investor, the person who defined the term literally created the term of art, product market fit, co-founder of Benchmark, which he created because, well, he needed a job and the previous venture capital (laughs) firm he was working at was uh, retiring and going through generational change. He teaches, he starts companies, he invests in them. And I think most of all, Andy, you have an incredibly positive outlook on life and you're very uh, successful. And so I wanted to start, and of course, you're the founder of Wealthfront. Thank you uh, for allowing me to be on the cap table, which is going into its 10th year this year. Now, there was a little pivot in the beginning. We'll talk about pivots. But I was thinking about you last night, and I was thinking, I always leave my conversations and our talks, and this is the fourth of them. We had you on the podcast on episode 335 in 2013, episode 813 in 2018, and episode 1002 in 2019. And here we are for our fourth conversation. I always leave a conversation with you feeling smarter, more energized, and actually more optimistic. Were you always this optimistic? And do you think that contributed to your success? Or were you earlier in your life prior to massive success as an investor, a founder, etc., life success? Did you find your positivity just ramped up? You know, I've always been optimistic, and it's funny, it drives my wife crazy because she can be pessimistic. But the (laughs) other day, we were uh, driving down to Carmel and listening to a podcast that that hosted Danny Meyer, the famous restaurateur, and he talked about how optimism was a really important quality in an entrepreneur, and my wife immediately threw an elbow into my side. <laughs> She's like, get this podcast off here. Put on something else. I can't listen to Danny Meyer talking about how great uh, – but I mean, I mean, think about what restaurants have been through in 2020, the year of the pandemic, the amount of suffering we've seen. And, you know, I think the real definition of positivity, if you, if you go back to even Viktor Frankl um, and his theories, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, if you haven't read it, great – book most people when you ask them what their favorite book is it's in the top three or at least self-aware people that positivity is really the defining factor of um what helps people get through really hard times that belief Hmm. that they can control their destiny it's a big part of it isn't it i I guess it it is it sure has worked for me 
<laughs> but then I haven't known any difference, so I, yeah. I just am who I am. Well, what about the dark times? I mean, there has had to have been some bumps in the road for you where you thought, man, I suck at this, or gosh, you know, and we're sitting here in the new year, people are maybe thinking positively about 2021 as a year. We get this pandemic behind us, growth in the stock market, and we'll talk about Wealthfront and all the tremendous offerings that you guys provide, has been awesome. And tech stocks have gone absolutely bonkers, valuations. So this pandemic is such a weird, mind-blowing phenomenon because in our industry, majority of people are having an up year while in all other industries and then just in general human suffering from mental illness to the death from the actual virus to education to our children has been really brutal. So, yeah, how do, how do you think about you know, have you gotten bad beats in your life and how you got through them? I've certainly been tested, but I think I've been radically more fortunate than others. So what I define as tested, I think others might actually want. So I remember a point when I was about, oh, six years or so into my venture career, I had a, a year in which all of my portfolio companies did poorly. And I don't know why it was, but they were just all on a bad streak. And I knew that the managing partner of the firm that I worked at at the time was uh, concerned as to whether or not I could be good at what I do. And fortunately, that worked out, but I had to have faith in in my companies because I knew they were very good businesses. So that was one. And for Wealthfront, 2018 was really trying for me because we had two market corrections and a bear market mm. in that year. And the, the company actually did some great things. The software that we delivered was fantastic, but it wasn't showing up in the financial results. And so I think that was the most trying for me in terms of leadership. Uh, making sure, trying to get people to focus on what we were setting up for 2019, which turned into a phenomenal year, as opposed to what the financials looked like as a result of our assets under management not growing to the extent we had wanted that year. So when you break apart those two, in, in both cases, you have outside factors that are out of your control. Uh, one, the market was you know, behaving uh, as it is wont to do, you know, having down bad beats in a, in a specific explicit product offering Wealthfront, which is set it, forget it. And, and the people who buy into your software are people who theoretically, I would think, should understand this investing for the long term. So you actually had, was that the first time during this 10-year run that you had to actually sit people down and say, I, this is that moment we talked about when you signed up. Don't sell on the way down. You know, like <laughs> this is the human behavior we're trying to correct with this very product. Everybody sells at the wrong time. Well, you know, it's really funny. We have not suffered from that. Specifically, people selling when the market goes down. It's actually been quite astounding to all of us how withdrawals are not at all correlated with market performance. Oh, but really? What is, That's but great. what is correlated with market performance are add-on deposits. 
Interesting. So, so Hold people, on, I got to guess that then. So people either add on when the market's down because they get greedy and they've heard that before, or they add on when it's going up because they have FOMO. Is so, it both or one or the other? Well, there's a lot of research, academic research that's been done that shows that people invest when the market goes up and they sell when the market goes down. Hmm. So we have not experienced the sell when the market goes down. But what we have experienced is our clientele is uh, 90% of it is 40 years old or younger. Hmm. And they're in the savings mode of their lives. They're in the wealth accumulation mode of their lives. So typically, they continue to add to their accounts consistently, except when markets go down, they don't pull money out, but they pull back. They don't add to their accounts, mm. which is actually a really bad thing to do because they think they're timing the market. They're a little scared to put the money to work. Uh, but if they had, they would have done much better because it's mm. almost like buying the market on sale. This is what I did. You have been a great counsel to me. I always thought, you know what, I, sh I'm, I should just focus on what I do really well and let you manage the money, the, this extra capital over here and do it. And I had it set on a three, which probably too conservative for, you know, somebody in my late 40s. But when that market dropped, I went in and I said, <laughs> 10. And I moved it to 10 while all hell was breaking loose in the end of March because I said, Looking historically at pandemics, having spoken with Andy many times, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. You know, as uh, Gandalf said to uh, Frodo, you know, like all we have to do is decide to do with the time we've been given or whatever that you know, I'm butchering the quote. And listen, the time we've been given is we know that it's going to go up and to the right over some period of time. I want we we'll get back to wealth in the stocks in a minute, but there was this moment in time when you had all of the companies you selected, you anointed, as we know, and we've talked about before, venture capital is about anointing companies in some ways. You're working for one of the first venture firms. I forgot the name of it. It was like five guys' names. Merrill even... Pickard, Anderson, and Iyer. Okay, four names. Merrill Pickard uh, is how it was. Re re Correct. And yeah. they were like started in the 80s or 70s? 1980. 80. So, I mean, these were one of the first 10 or so of, the, of that cohort of venture capitalists you worked for. And you're a young uh, guy working there and you make whatever, four, five, six bets, and they're all going south. And your <laughs> boss thinks, who did I put in charge of this swath of capital? And you're thinking, am I, should I be in this position? Now, the LPs in a venture fund, they're not seeing that day to day, right? So, Correct. this is just in your own head and your boss's head. Did your boss give you some counsel like, hey, ride it out, kid, it's going to be okay? Or was it like, mm, maybe we need to ride you right out the door? Well, he asked me a lot of questions about the companies because he was concerned that they weren't going to do well. Uh, so, it wasn't that he wanted to ride me out the door, but I could tell based on the questions that he asked about my portfolio companies that he was very, very concerned. I am in love with a new product. It's called Chart Hop. It's new to me. I mean, it's been around, to be honest. Uh, many of you are already using it. You can go see it at charthop.com slash twist. When you want to create an organizational chart for your company, this is a critical moment that shows you are venture fundable. If you 
No, these are my top executives. These are my units. This is my group that's going to do customer support. This is my marketing group. This is my CTO. This is uh, finance. This is operations. Well, you can do all that and make like some cruddy little drawing with like some painting program or sketching program, or you can make your own org chart that has all the data around all of your people. We call this people data. We call it human capital in the industry. But in this org chart, you can also put in performance reviews right into the org chart. And you centralize all the data there. And you can build a nice, agile, adaptable, and inclusive team because you can look and say, hey, where's my diversity? How am I doing with building out my organization? And at the core, a startup is about people. We all know that. Go to charthop.com slash twist and try it out today. You're going to get $600 in credits. I talked to the founders. I talked to the marketing team over there and I said, just give people hundreds of dollars. Just come over the top and throw like, just grab a handful of hundies and throw them at the audience. Well, here it is. Charthop.com slash twist, $600 in credits. Go and get it set up now. Basically, that 600 is going to cover your first five employees on the platform, which makes it no brainer to get started. Go ahead and check out chart hop, C-H-A-R-T-H-O-P.com slash twist for 600. Get it now because I don't know if they're going to keep that offer up. How does one act when you are a venture capitalist or in any situation where you're not at the steering wheel? You're not on the court. You're not you know, the point guard, you're not the shooting guard, you're not the center, you you're the coach, or you know, in your case, you're like, whatever the third coach on the bench in a venture fund, you, you can't get in there and play the game for them. How does one turn it around and maintain their sanity when your fate is tied to people who are at the steering wheel, not you? You have to be really, really patient. Because you cannot affect that outcome. So you have to make the right decisions going in and you have to rely on those decisions. I'm always amazed by venture capitalists with whom I sat on boards who would blame management when the company didn't do well. And this was the beginning of my thinking about product market fit and, the, and its power. You know, I, I'm a big believer that companies succeed and fail based on the quality of their product market fit. So you could be a lousy management and do exceptionally well, and you could be hmm. a great management and do incredibly poorly if the dogs don't want to eat the dog food. So I kept coming back to first principles, which was, do customers want to buy the product and are there, are, are these just temporary issues? And if they weren't temporary issues, then I would get a lot more worried. But in the case of, of those companies, uh, I was fortunate in that they were just very temporary issues. Explain how you they just something. all happened to have yeah. happened at the same <laughs> time, which was really inconvenient. You know, and if you, you you're not a poker player, are you? Have you played no, poker? Not. Yeah. So we got to get you in the game because uh, you've got only money to and take you, my money. That's the well, you you, you do have me. money, and you would you would become quickly addicted to it because it it you do have these moments where. You could lose. You could be ahead. You could make all the right decisions, and then you lose five times in a row. Which, when you're a seventy percent, you know, eighty percent favorite, sixty-five percent favorite, five times in a row, six times in a row, and you lose all of those, your mind starts to go crazy, and you start to question things. And I think that's why so many venture capitalists get attracted to the brain chemistry associated with venture, which is you have these like 
incredible highs where, you know, oh my God, I, I picked Slack or I picked Uber or I picked Airbnb. I mean, can you imagine what Paul Graham's brain is doing right now that he backed Airbnb and, you know, uh, in December, Airbnb became, uh, I mean, worth almost a hundred billion dollars. And we'll get into stocks and, 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 and the sort of newfound, uh, retail investors, the Robin Hood crowd in a minute. But I do want to talk about this perplexing nature of management theory. Because you're sitting there and you you just pointed out there could be two different things at play. There could be there could be poor decision making or bad beats and you know mistakes, bumps in the road, things that can be ironed out. And then there are systematic things. But we look back on a systematic failure of leadership with extreme product market fit, and then we read into it that maybe the causation there was. Oh, that eccentric founder who was a nightmare, who treated people in this certain way, is their management theory is correct. When you look at management theory, how do you d try to decipher that in relation to this phenomenon? I don't. I try to really focus on on product market fit, the quality mm. of the product market fit. And I came to believe at the end of my venture capital tenure that my number one value added as a board member was to hold the mirror up to management so that they could be intellectually honest about the quality of their product market fit. Mm. Because if I told them I didn't, I believed or I didn't believe that wasn't relevant because who am I? I'm not involved in the business every single day, but where I could add value is by holding the mirror up to them to make sure that they were being intellectually honest about their opportunity and they were in a better position to judge that than I. That made mm -hmm. them appreciate me because I wasn't directing. I wasn't, uh, you know, trying to put my thumb on the scale and it led them to be more intellectually honest. And often it led to a great outcome because look, almost every successful company has pivoted from its original business plan in order to find that success. And the, the challenge I, faced is as I got older, how do I help people uh, recognize the market issues so that they make the right changes without telling them what to do? Mm, this is such an astute point. When you're trying to help somebody, especially somebody who has self-selected to be a leader, telling somebody who has the chutzpah and the and the drive to become that CEO and to get past the hurdle of raising venture capital, which is one in 10,000 or 100,000 founders are able to cross that hurdle. You can't tell them do X. You have to somehow um, get through to them by holding up the mirror, as you say. What would be the language you would use with me if I was a founder who was, you know, getting more concerned about you know, operating management theory, the the reception, you know, area at the company, you know, my my out of control sales manager who's high performing but a jerk, and I'm I'm not focused on the product. How do you hold up that mirror? What's the language you used to use when trying to communicate that to folks? Well, first and foremost, I'd spend a lot of time talking to the management teams about the importance of product market fit to see if I got buy in on that. Mm. To, to see what their attitude was. And uh, assuming that we had a meeting of the mind that that was the most important thing to success. And generally we did have a meeting of a mind of the minds mm. on that. Then I would ask them to evaluate it. 
Mm. So that's a key part. One, you're getting buy-in and you're framing the discussion. Hey, listen, do you believe that the product is the most important thing here? Okay, everybody says yes. Great. Now we're all now to step two, which is how do we confirm that we have that? Not just our gut, but how do we actually know we have it? What are mm -hmm. the techniques for knowing we have product market fit? And this has changed over time because we have big data. We have metrics that you didn't have, correct, in the 90s? The amount you know, of data. The metrics, though, that I use, that I've come to use, or the heuristics that I've come to recommend, don't require big data. It's, okay, here really, we go. They're really simple. Let's do it. Give us the heuristic for people who don't know what the word means. I, I'm no genius. I didn't go to an Ivy League school, but I think it means heuristic means like rules that you can apply on some consistent basis. Yeah. What okay. are the, the, the tricks or hints that you use to do what you do? Okay, here we go. So what are the heuristics that you use? Because Wealthfront has consistently... And I know this, I'm not speaking as somebody who's a shareholder. I'm speaking as somebody or your friend. I hope we have like a friendship now over these four episodes. Sure. I feel like we do. I, I want to know what are the ones that, because if you look at every feature you add to that product, and I use my wife as a proxy as well because she loves the product. She loves using it. It's very addictive. Uh, and every new product seems to, you know, listen, I'm not, I don't know if you're batting a thousand but you're certainly batting very, very well. So what are the Actually, I don't want to, I, if we're batting a thousand or close to a thousand, we've done a really poor job. Why? Because it's just like venture capital, no risk, no reward. Hmm. Uh, I think that the returns are Pareto optimal. I mean, in almost every field, 20% of the sample generates 80% of the value. Hmm. If you try, wait a second, it, Pareto optimal, yeah, which so, is that well, phenomenon when it's the eighty twenty rule. Alfredo Pareto, an Italian uh, philosopher, actually or mathematician, came up with the concept, which I think is one of the greatest laws of nature. That twenty percent of the population, no matter what the population is or the topic is, generates eighty percent of the value. So, 80% mm. uh, of your sales usually come from 20% of your customers. 80% of your returns come from 20% of your portfolio companies. 80% of the great ideas come from 20% of your employees. It's incredibly consistent. Now, if you want a really high uh, probability of success, the likelihood that you're going to get a big win is exceptionally low. So one of the jokes I used to use when I taught a class on venture capital at Stanford was, what do you call a venture capitalist who's never lost money on an investment? Okay, hold on. What do you call a venture capitalist who's never lost money on an investment? Uh, somebody who, yeah, somebody's doing it wrong. Go ahead. <laughs> Unemployed. Because I don't want that person as my partner. <laughs> exactly. No risk, no reward. You got to make bets. Right. And if you're not making great bets, uh, you're not pushing hard enough. And I was watching uh, a friend of mine had a product that launched just yesterday or the day before. And let's just say this product had incredible success for most of the deployment, but in the final moments, the product didn't do so well. 
And I just texted him and I said, that was incredible. What an amazing success, you know, and you're, you're pushing the envelope. If you're, if, if things aren't blowing up once in a while, you know, you're not pushing. And he wrote back. So I preach, I want to fail a lot. Ah. So I, I preach. You have a number? Pardon me? You have a number? Like half, half the bet shouldn't work? Well, less than half should work. Oh, okay. Wow. So we actually talk about this. It's an explicit part of our product process at Wealthfront uh, because I want people to to reach. I want them to go for things that are impactful. And mm. that's true. You know, while you might like all of the features that we have, not all of them hit a nerve. Mm. So you for have to example, sunset them. Yeah. Yeah, so so uh, we built a product that is a, a superb product to help employees sell their stock after their company goes public. Yes, I remember. Executives have something called a 10B51 plan available to them that private wealth managers make available to sell their stock consistently, but the rank and file employees don't. So Mm. we built this great product, but we couldn't get buy-in from the equity administrators of the companies because I think they were in the pockets of the people who, who manage those option plans. And even though what we offered was free with no commissions well before Robinhood, we couldn't get any buy-in. Same thing with financial planning. So not all of our great features are appreciated. We think they all add value, but there's no accounting for taste. As someone who's invested in over 200 companies, and I've advised many more, I want to talk to you about a serious pain point, and that is your burn rate. Ask yourself, how much money are you spending on all these different software products out there? And how much time does it take to integrate them all together? Let me guess, way too much. We all know that. Well, Odoo, O-D-O-O, is here to change that. Odoo is a fully customizable and a fully integrated suite of software that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. It's simple and modular, so you use only what you need and all of their apps integrate perfectly with each other because they make all of them. Plus, it's all open source, so you can spend your capital on talent instead of expensive software. And your first app is always free. It's free forever. And right now, Odoo has come over the top. We do a lot of offers here. Sometimes people offer a 50. Sometimes they offer a hundy. Here we go. First time ever, a thousand. Odoo is offering you a thousand dollars in credit on your first implementation pack. It's not a joke. You're going to get that thousand dollar credit right now if you go to odoo.com slash twist, odoo.com slash twist. Check it out, odoo.com slash twist to get the thou. You're going to get the thousand. You're going to get a dime right in your pocket. Go get it. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Let's go back to the, and or, incumbents who don't want to see you succeed and will do everything they can uh, to block you. I mean, that is part of what great founders run up against is if you are doing something innovative, there might be somebody who's already taken that hill and you want to take that hill or you want to level that hill. It's hard to take a hill that's already been taken. So you have to change the rules of the game if you hope to succeed. You can't out execute somebody, especially someone who's bigger in tech that seldom works. Yeah. So when we look at something like an Amazon, you look at something like a Facebook, you're not going to take the hill they're already on. You want to look for a different hill. A different hill that maybe is growing so that you can eventually reach the heights that they're at and maybe you get the high ground. So the simple heuristics or the simple formulas that we think about or that I preach 
in consumer is exponential organic growth. Exponential organic growth. Okay, exponential we know. So let's it's break growing. that down, right? Yeah, exponential we know. It's non Non-linearly, so right. uh, more than linearly. And organic, meaning not paid. Now, the only oh. way that you get organic growth is through word of mouth. So you Correct. really- you have to really satisfy the consumer in order for the consumer to tell their friends. So you know you've really hit a nerve when you observe word of mouth. Hmm. So the and really this we've seen so many times. So many what times. will be the products that you look at and say, there's a product with this real world virality, this word of mouth that then of course drives organic growth and then if it is really, truly transcendent, could be exponential organic growth. The, the, that is the heuristic we're talking about here. Give us the examples that come to mind for you. Name a franchise technology company, Jason, and I will, I will bet that they didn't advertise in their Google. early days. Google, no advertising. Tesla. Facebook. Amazon. Netflix. None of these companies. Instagram. You, you name it. That uh, if if it's a product that you like, Airbnb again, word of mouth, DoorDash, yes, Apple, word of but mouth. But Apple did do famously advertising, and Steve Jobs was obsessed with it. Explain that exception after they had exponential organic growth. Ah, so you can so accelerate your growth with paid, mm. but but if you can't generate. Uh, rapid growth solely through word of mouth, you haven't hit a nerve and you don't have product market fit. Interesting. Really so, simple the, metric. It's such a simple metric, but we have a generation now, I'll say as we do, it's 2021 here and we look back on the teens, this 2010 to 2020 period, I'll call it you know, Y Combinator, you know, coming out of web 2.0, the post great recession era, this boom period, uh, when Facebook and Google's ad networks had reached such an amazing footprint that you could put into their casino a lot of bets on paid growth, it seems like everybody is optimizing for paid growth first. Is this the big mistake of the the teens or is it, who cares? Like we, there's so much money sloshing around. It doesn't matter if you blow some money on paid. It's a huge mistake. And the, if you talk to the premier venture capitalists, they all know to filter for that mm. because you can grow through paid. Mm. The question is, will the customers stay with you? So if you buy someone who then churns, what good is that growth? Right. So they the have first to stick thing with the product, the first thing the good venture capitalists do is really try to understand how much of the growth was from organic to try to get at whether or not this is a really high quality business. And the term, they'll, to, they'll use the term good unit economics as the uh, proxy for this. How, what does unit economics mean for people who are just hearing that term for the first time here on This Week in Startups? It means, uh, can you acquire a customer cost effectively and uh, will it generate cash flow over that customer generate cash flow over time? Okay, so my customer acquisition cost is $10 and my app costs $5, so I lose $5 every time where it's a $10 subscription. So if they make it to year two, then I'm in the in the black. But everybody, 
churns in the first six months because the product's not good. It doesn't have product market fit. And that's the unit economics they're looking for. Yes. Uh, when we look, so when we look at that advertising, in the case of Steve Jobs, it seems to me some people also do advertising, I think, as a, I almost think like a victory lap or like as a playful, fun culture exercise for their own team, partners, et cetera. Do you, do you get the sense that some people do that? Maybe, but I don't yeah. think there are many of them. I think yeah. that for the most part, it's it's either for uh, customer acquisition or brand building. All right. So that, Netflix, that's consumer. Yeah. If you want to talk yes. about enterprise, there are a lot oh, more yeah. successful enterprise companies than there are consumer companies. Why are there so many more successful enterprise companies than consumer companies? I think it's easier to succeed. Okay. It's an easier <laughs> path. It's an easier it, path. So- why is it easier? Because if it's easier, I'm going to guess it goes back to your core product market fit, the term that you coined, which let's face it, it was Don Valentine at Sequoia who had this idea, perhaps one of the greatest venture capitalists. You put him in the top three of all time? Top, top two. five? Top two. Top two. So you have John Doerr, Michael Moritz, Doug Leone. Who else is in that cohort? I'm just throwing names out here. Well, the, to me, the top two are Doerr and Valentine. Okay. So this, let's do product market fit. We'll, go, we'll circle back around to John Doerr. For product market fit, Don Valentine, who, who passed this year, Michael Moritz wrote a wonderful little book just about his legacy. Uh, and I got to meet him. I got to be in the room and I pitched him. And I didn't know who this guy was. He's just this quiet little old guy in the corner of the room. But he came up to me with a big smile afterwards. And said, I really enjoyed your vision. And it, I just remember that interaction when I, you know, 15 years ago or so when I raised money from Sequoia from one of my companies. And... What was so special about Don Valentine? Because you were somebody who studied the people who came for you before you and tried to codify, and you're thoughtful. So what, what what did you what did Don Valentine say to you? What did you hear when you were at board meetings with him or other Sequoia folks that led you to codify product market fit? Well, that, it's that, what he I did have his fingerprints on it, correct? Yeah, it's what I observed and then mm. followed up with some of the partners who are my age. So I'm 62 and Don was in his late 80s when he passed away. So a, a generation ahead of me. But the, I think the brilliance of Valentine was the observation that if a startup can screw something up, it will. Not because they're bad, <laughs> but because they're so under-resourced relative or to the incumbents that it's really, really hard to mm -hmm. do well in the beginning. And so you need a pull from the market that's so strong that it overcomes the fact you're going to screw up almost everything that you try to execute as a startup. Ah, yes. If you want to build a website or an online store, or you want to do a conference, or maybe you've got some really creative project you want to do, or maybe just a portfolio, there is only one place for you to go. I literally was on the phone with a founder who was like, how do I make something beautiful? And she was like, going to spend $35,000, I kid you not, on a website with modest functionality to some crazy agency. And I said, hold on. Show me the scope of work. She shows me the scope of work. I said, you realize Squarespace is better than this. 
And Squarespace is literally going to cost you 1% of what they're asking for for the next couple of years. Squarespace makes beautiful websites. That's all you need to know. And they have tons of templates that are all responsive. You get to be part of the Squarespace ecosystem, which is constantly improving. You can blog and publish content. That's obvious. Promote your business, sell products. And they have all these beautiful templates by world-class designers that work on all devices. They also put a ton of energy into SEO, search engine optimization. Plus, you get the free and secure hosting, 24-7 award winning customer support. And of course, they added e-commerce. We decided in 2020 to make the best use of the pandemic. We were locked up in our houses. And I looked and I said, you know, there's all these companies not getting funded. We started something called remotedemoday.com. I said to everybody, I want the website up in 24 hours. They had it up in minutes. And then we just had to write the copy. We got it all up online. And it has played a huge part in that. We actually purchased the remotedemoday.com domain right on the site. Go to squarespace.com twist for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, Use the offer code TWIST and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Please use the promo code TWIST so they know that I sent you. Squarespace and the team have been an incredible partner of this program for years. Anthony, great founder. We'd love to have him back on the pod, actually. We have to check in. We haven't, we haven't talked in a long time. So go ahead and use uh, squarespace.com slash TWIST. Thanks again, Squarespace and the team over there for making great software. The market loves the product so much. It's pulling the market out of your hands that it forgives any type of rough edges or internal under-resourced or just incompetence that you may have in your five-person startup. Exactly. Yeah. And if you look at the early Apple computers uh, or you look at how rough the first Tesla was, the Roadster, there was so much promise and so much market pull from those products. Even Netflix with people mailing DVDs, they wanted to have a different experience than going to Blockbuster that they sought out that company. Well, think about how crappy the original content was on Netflix streaming. Oof. But you solved the problem that people, they wanted some entertainment and they wanted it instantly. Right. So the, that minimum viable product really hit a nerve and mm. overcame the fact that most uh, initial products don't really solve a broad set of needs, but they hit a nerve with a particular audience that then tells their friends about it. As the business grows, it can then afford to invest in the product and make it better, build out what Jeffrey Moore calls the whole product. You cross the chasm and you, and you build a bigger and bigger business. And even if you think about the, I'm, I just, I've read two Netflix books recently. Um, the Patty McCord one, she came on the pod, uh, just about her HR management philosophy a couple of years ago. Uh, and then I just read Reed Hastings and Erin, I forgot her last name, but she's going to come on the pod, um, uh, talking about their Netflix culture. Um, no rules, rules. And the fact that Erin Meyer, um, is the co-author, and I kind of think she's the kind of the whole author. <laughs> they had a plan. Were you on the DVD plan when they mailed you the DVDs? Yeah, and Reed's a good friend of mine. You know, I sat on the board oh. of his previous company. And, what? And we turned down Netflix three times. Wait, wait, hold on. <laughs> Tell everybody the name of the previous company. because It was called he- Pure, Pure Software. He built it to be about $170 million in revenue in technical software, which was an amazing achievement. We went public and ultimately sold the business. Uh, Reed then retired to focus on his uh, great passion, which is education. I think he became the superintendent in charge of all uh, schools in California. He actually went back to get a graduate. To, he, 
he had been a teacher and he worked in the Peace Corps before he got, yeah. became a software engineer. But, uh, he, he got a master's degree in education because he wanted to be authentic to try to make an impact. And what few people in California realize is that there was a law in California that required a super majority of voters to vote for a pond issue to build schools or to make, huh. uh, uh, to, improves uh, school buildings. And Reed took this on to make it a majority. And as a result, the schools in California are radically better now because there have been so many more bond issues that have been done in, uh, on behalf of schools. Wow. So Reed made an enormous difference in education. He was an angel investor in Netflix and the chairman because the VP of marketing from Pure Software was a uh, video file and he couldn't get DVDs because at Blockbusters, right. they only had VHS. So it started as a video rental business, pure rental, and mm. it failed. And then Reed had converted pure into a subscription business. And he thought, well, we're failing anyway. Why don't we try subscription? This is the Beautiful. real story, not the story that everyone tells. Well, I mean, and, yeah, really, these are where the bodies are buried. It's so incredible because he, in the book, he talks about pure software and just he seems to look back on his time there as complete incompetence and that he, oh, he was, was just, great. He was he, flailing. And, oh, let me tell you, I have learned more from him than anyone else I've ever uh, worked with other okay. than my partner, Bruce Dunleavy. Reed Hastings was an amazing CEO. He made me a better board member. Uh, he used to say that about himself. He was just superb. What made him so superb in those early years? And then we'll get to the later years. You know how I talked earlier about the need to go for it? Yeah. So every year he would come to his board. Now, mind you, this is a guy who had never managed anyone before he started his software company. He wrote this amazing utility single-handedly that found memory leak problems in graphical user interfaces. And this was an enormous problem in Unix when, when, uh, he solved this problem. The product was called Purify and it exploded because every, uh, C++ developer faced this problem. It's a memory debugger. Yeah. So, uh, so the thing that Reed did that just blew me away was that every year, <clears throat> the beginning of every year, he would, Tell his board, this is what I'm going to bet the company on. What? Yes. So you made this investment in pure software and this maniac comes to the board after you've made a decision to invest in his company and says, by the way, we're putting the entire company on this number on the roulette wheel. Well, it was an asymmetric risk, Jason. I know okay, you're explain. a gambler. So yeah. the, the, the way that he would bet the company is if it succeeded, we would do exceptionally well. Okay. And if we failed, we'd take a step back, but we wouldn't go out of business. So there was no, as we call it in the in the gambling business, risk of ruin. The risk of ruin is when you place a bet so large that it deploys, uh, depletes your bankroll. So these were not bankroll depleting. These were high risk, step back, but you could recover from them. Yes. And wow, he, just he would be an incredible poker player. He instinctively knew to do this, which just blew me away because I'd never worked with a CEO who did this. Oh. And you might recall in 2011, Netflix decided to separate its 
streaming business from its DVD business. Quickie. What was it? Quickster. 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 I actually teach a case on this. And it was an unmitigated disaster. But Reed wanted to bet the company on streaming. And what most people didn't realize is that the user experience of streaming is radically different than the user experience of DVDs. Mm. Remember, with DVDs, there was a queue that you had to set up so that they would mail you the most appropriate DVD when you mailed one back. But with streaming, it was instant. So the queue was an irrelevant user experience. Right. And you couldn't, if he wanted to be great at streaming, he couldn't have the two experiences on one website. So he wanted to separate the two. And people went nuts when he tried to do that. And they told him he was a fool and the stock plummeted. 85%. Oh, and and you know what he did? He raised money when his stock was down 85% because he so believed in his strategy that he needed the money to buy more content to make streaming more compelling. Right. So this is an example of this crazy asymmetrical bet. And it didn't ruin the company. It, in fact, the step back was in a way a slingshot. So well, the asymmetrical bet could, you could take a step back, but it puts that fire in the belly of the founder with those learnings that you slingshot ahead and streaming was born. Now he had been in streaming for four years. So he had the data to know that it was going to be successful that investors mm-hmm. didn't really understand. But. And what he ultimately did was he put the two sites back together again, but he buried DVD. He was like, yeah, if you guys want this, you're going to have to go find it. You're going to have to we're go going find to. It. Yeah. I, the interesting thing about that, I knew this was a special company because I was a Netflix subscriber from like the moment it happened because I was a cinephile and I was in my big Kurosawa phase and Frankenheimer. And I wanted to watch all these movies. Now, the way you watched old movies was you either went to Kim's video in New York on the Lower East Side where they had this obscure films or you had to buy them from you know, some uh, Criterion collection for $35 a DVD. I didn't have that option. And he came out with this DVD rental and they had a version when I, uh, I somehow got them a customer support and I said, I want to get like six movies. So do I have to sign up for two different queues and so I have two simultaneous accounts? Because I'm prepared to do that. And they said, no, we actually have a nine version one for $40 a month. And I was like, what? They had a nine disc version. I didn't know that. Nope, they didn't tell anybody, but there was a group of people who were such maniacs that they were doing, you know, two or three subscriptions to the same address. And, and obviously they figured it out because people would be returning DVDs. It was become, start becoming confusing, right? And then what I would do is I became a machine. I got two, I had my old computer, I had my new computer. I had two DVD drives on each. Goff, I'm sorry to the, uh, I'm sorry to the DVD gods of the world. I didn't know this was illegal at the time. Maybe it's not. I would just ba- I would just rip them and, and put them on my hard drive on my computer. So when I was working, I had two different monitors. I could watch a Kurosawa film and I could blog. And it was like the greatest experience ever. But he says over and over again that he didn't understand humans. He looked at human beings as essentially like software and part of the you know infrastructure of the company. And that Patty McCord. Uh, which I don't know if you know her. I do. You know, used to drive to work with him. And basically, he kind of gives her credit for, he doesn't say this explicitly, but the kind of undercurrent is she gave him the empathy like chip and made him start to think about humans' experiences uh, and how to make this new culture. Before we get into that. and his Well, there's human- no question that Patty had an impact, but 
Reed is, he's just an amazing, transcendent, yeah. amazing guy. Yet you as an investor passed three times on Netflix. Uh, so uh, here uh, we go. <laughs> you know, the chess board is playing out, Andy. And this is what I do for a living. We're playing chess here. And you just moved your rook and exposed your knight. I'm moving my queen up. You're in check. What did you learn from he's the greatest ever to you passed three times on Netflix, which would have been a career defining investment, even for Andy Radcliffe? Well, I wasn't the consumer guy at the time, so I wasn't oh. leading this, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I had Andy a role in it. I definitely Okay, all right, it. some ownership. Here we go. <laughs> so, you know, the, the first time we turned it down, it was the rental business, which didn't okay. make any Reasonable. sense. Reasonable. Yeah. The second time, he had just converted to subscription. And then- okay. uh, More compelling. More compelling, but he didn't yet have the data. In the third time, we were worried about how big the market could become for it. And the lesson learned is when you have someone who's just great, forget product market fit, you just give them the money. Yes, 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 yes. 1,000 times yes. My biggest mistakes in life were before I was an angel investor, Elon was asking me for introductions to people who might invest in Tesla. Mark Pincus was trying to do this online poker game that became Zynga. And my friend Evan Williams was doing this Twitter thing. And in all three cases, I wasn't an angel investor at the time. I just was like, here, I'll introduce you to venture capitalists. But I knew they were going to be successful. And I could have been on the cap tables. But like an idiot, I didn't actually pull the trigger on it. Now, he did this Netflix culture uh, deck. And he came up with a very interesting version of how to manage people. I'm curious, how do you look at managing people? And then we'll get into his view of it. And I want to sort of compare and contrast. But when you look at managing people now uh, at Wealthfront, what is the culture you've chosen to build and how is it going? You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I think that one of the lessons that I learned from one of my teaching partners at Stanford, a fellow named Mark Leslie, who built a very successful company called uh, Veritas that he oh built Lord, into yes. about a, a billion and a half in revenue, and then he retired. And uh, uh, the company didn't do nearly as well after he retired. It was sold to Symantec and then I think spun off again. Anyway, Mark uh, was an astute judge of culture. And he said something to me that really had an impact in one of the classes. And that's the fun thing about teaching is how much you learn. Uh, what he said was, the second the CEO changes, the culture changes. Mm. Because culture models the behavior of the CEO. Okay. So if the CEO changes, people then start to model the new CEO. If the CEO is kind, the culture is going to be kind. If the CEO is a dick... The, the culture is going to be a dick because you think, hey, if I act like the CEO, I'm going to get ahead. So uh, when I became a CEO, I thought a lot about that Mark Leslie line and what it was that I wanted to model. Mm -hmm. So I'm a really big believer in the golden rule, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. And uh, And the thing that I was really most satisfied with was we often would get asked the question by potential recruits, what's your culture? I don't think you can describe a culture, but I do think you can describe your values because the culture derives from the values. And about a few years ago, we tasked a, a, inter, a multifunctional team 
to interview everyone in our company to come up with a very short list of values that were unique to Wealthfront. And I was really ecstatic to learn that the four things that they came up with were exactly what I try to model every single day. Wow. Okay. So risk-taking, trust, candid communication. What, what do you got? What's it So the, the four there? of them are, so the okay. things that we value are number one, the well-being of our clients. So okay. we try to put our clients' interests ahead of our own. This is the golden rule thing. Yeah. Uh, number two is information that empowers. Mm -hmm. And by that, we're really referring to uh, being candid and transparent. People in our company are shocked with how candid and transparent the management team is. We share all of our financials. We share our board meetings. We literally share everything because the better informed they are, the better decisions they're going to be able to make because you want to push that decision-making as low as possible. That's something consistent with, with Netflix. Number three is fresh perspectives, which I think is also something consistent, although we weren't trying to do it with Netflix, but having worked around Reed, uh, he certainly had an impact on the, the behaviors I wanted to model. Uh, so fresh perspectives means we, we want people to come in and question what we're doing so that, uh, especially if, if they come from uh, outside companies, because they might have better ideas than we do. Mm. So we want to embrace that. And then, uh, all right. Well being of clients, golden rule. We got that information yeah. that empowers candidates and transparency. We got that fresh perspective because people coming in, hey, they might, you might be doing it wrong. And he talks about this in his book. Okay. And the last one is endurance. Oh, and endurance. There you go. I was giving you a little filibuster there, my friend. Thank you very much. My pleasure. My pleasure. senior moment. So I'm sorry. It's about all that. good. It's all good. I got that. I, listen, I turned 50 uh, in November uh, and uh, I got my AARP. <laughs> so you and I will be getting the two for one special uh, in Palo Alto at 430. We'll be eating our dinner. We'll be in bed by 730, Andy. Well, the last one has to do with long-term focus, that whenever possible, we try to choose the, the path that leads to the best long-term outcome, not the best short-term outcome. I love it. Sure. And you have so, to model this over and over and over again to get mm. other people to do it. So I was ecstatic when the team came up with those four values. I love it. And the endurance uh, one is just so critical because almost every success we've seen is the result of getting through those first, you know, X number of years, that's probably two, three, four of product market fit. And those next X number of years of scaling. And then, of course, your one of your favorite books and mine built to last becoming a sustainable enterprise, right? Well, especially given the perturbations of the stock market and the impact that it could could have on our business. You know, we used to have uh, trolls that said, Oh, wait till they have a stock market correction. Well, we've had about eight of those and we've done just fine. And then wait till they have a bear market. And so then we had a bear market, but it corrected. And they said, well, it corrected so fast. So wait till they have a real bear market. So then we had the bear market from COVID-19. They're still going to come up with excuses, but you know, you have to be able to, to live through those times when people slow up on their add-on deposits temporarily. Yes, and being built to last and that, uh, who's the guy from built to last? Good to great, Jim Collins? Jim Collins. Jim Collins. Which, by He's the way, a, was the number one dri driver of the culture at Benchmark. 
Jim Collins, uh, and the name benchmark comes from, we've talked about this before, you know, it's an architectural term, it's a term of art. We, we would, in the old days, benchmark software versus each other, they would benchmark computers versus each other. So if you were to open up PC Magazine or any of those kind of, when we were in the hardware and early software days, you know, Windows and operating system days of this great technological journey we've been on for five decades here, six decades, benchmarking one computer versus another, benchmarking one operating system versus another, benchmarking one spreadsheet versus another spreadsheet was kind of how you did it and built to last and Jim Collins, good to great. He really tried to talk about the sustainability and endurance is one of those things. Uh, talk about his impact on benchmark and your thinking and, and what's special about Jim Collins. And we got to book him as a guest. Uh, you really do. If you can get him, he's really, really hard to get. He is. But, but well, don't Too successful. Last, yeah. studied 18 companies that had been successful over very long periods of time, market leaders for up to 100 years. And uh, Collins found that two, uh, there were three key things to, to the company's success, two of which we really embraced at, at Benchmark. And one was a cult-like culture. Uh, and two was a desire to constantly experiment. Hmm. The third one was uh, CEOs who were clock builders, not time tellers, meaning they created an organization they didn't try to make the decisions themselves. So that wasn't terribly relevant to us. But the cult-like culture and uh, the uh, embracing of experimentation were two things that we really wanted to do. And those are things that I've carried forward with me. You know, Collins wrote a book before uh, Built to Last. Good to great. That, uh, no, good to great was after built to last. What? Actually, yeah, it was huh. after. So Jim Collins was a year ahead of me in business school, and he was a lecturer at Stanford who did exceptionally well. So I, I knew of him, but he wrote a book before uh, built to last called, I think, Beyond Entrepreneurship, and it was all about how you create a compelling mission statement. Okay, and yeah, ninety two beyond entrepreneurship, turning your best business into an enduring great company, then built to last. Successful habits of visionary companies. Then, when in two thousand one, when I got on the train, good to great, and then I went backwards. So that's my my bad. No, no problem. And great by choice uh, came later. Turning the flywheel because the flywheel was the other concept he really codified for a lot of us founders. We'll get into that in a moment. But well, we going. just used Beyond Entrepreneurship to redo our mission statements, our original missions. And he's in the book talks about you want a big, hairy, audacious goal, and you want something that's measurable and something that you likely need to adapt after 10 years or so. So our original mission statement at Wealthfront was to democratize access to sophisticated financial advice. And it's fairly measurable. We think that, that, uh, the impact that not only we've had, but on the industry has caused other people to do what we do. And we thought it's time to refresh it as we started getting the banking in addition to, uh, investing. And so our new mission statement is to build a financial system that favors people, not institutions. Hmm. Okay. Now there you're tilting at windmills. This is some Don Quixote shit right now. <laughs> That's the what I do. 
Oh my lord. Now how has that gone for Wealthfront? Let's start let's start delving into a little bit Wealthfront. You've been incredible for 51 minutes on the pod straight <laughs> of giving us so much knowledge. The density of this pod will go down in history. It's one of your great What are they, a, a trifecta is when you bet 3. What do they call it when you bet 4 horses, Nick? What is that 4 horse bet when you go to the track? Superfecta. There it is. Okay. <laughs> That's a superfecta in terminology is when you bet on your 1 2 3 4. Trifecta is when you bet on 3. You get the idea. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of gambling terminology going on here. So tilting at windmills, number one, fees. Oh my Lord. Anytime you make any cheddar in this world, you start getting people coming to you, asking you to manage your money, and they're going to get one. Oh, I just want 1%. Just one, maybe 1.25 or 1.5, but one, they frame it as 1%. Why is this framing complete utter bullshit and then how have you shifted this framework with Wealthfront specifically? Well, I think we innovated with our incredibly low fee and no nickel and dime fees on our investment service. Mm. Banking has a lot more fees. Now, the reason banking has such high fees is something that I hadn't realized until we dug into it. And that is com consumer banks are built on a business model that embraces branches. Hmm. They deliver their service through branches. Just like car dealerships. Right. Now, what I hadn't appreciated was the average cost, annual cost to a consumer to maintain that branch is $200. What? Each one of the consumers has to pay 200 to keep that office up and running, keep the lights on. Yes. That's a lot of money. Because each branch, each branch supports about 1,500 people and uh, they cost around $300,000 to run. Okay. So it's That's about- just for the receptionist, the office space. That doesn't even count the, the, the money managers, does it? No. No, but that's just the basic tellers, the, the basic functions. Putting the lights so, on. So in order to support that $200, they've got to get at least $200 of fees out of you. Now, young people tend not to find value in those branches. So they don't want to pay the fees that are required mm. to support it. Now, the fees can come in the form of minimums or if you uh, overdraft your account. There are all sorts of horrible fees. And then there's float. You know, back in the days of the Pony Express, when it took a long time to move money from one place to another, you could expect that it would take time for something to clear. But today, everything is instant. But mm. that doesn't mean that banks clear immediately because they know they can take that money that's in transit and make money on that money. Mm. They call that float. Yes. So a huge amount of money is made on float. So what we're trying to do is get rid of float so that money can move immediately and get rid of the cost of the float so it accrues to you and not to the banks. We can do really well making money with you, not from you. And that's why we're trying to build. So there's a double entendre to this mission statement in that we're both trying to build a financial system at Wealthfront that serves you such that we favor you, not us. And we're trying to set an example so that other people 
And therefore, the entire financial system changes from favoring the institution to favoring the consumer. And this manifests itself in incredibly low fees and no fees for the first X amount. Explain where you're at with that. Because when you were talking about this, I was just thinking, you not only turned the, and I think some of the great services do this, the tax on a young person coming in was so great that they wouldn't even, they'd be scared to walk into the branch. You made it so you explicitly, when you walk in the branch, you're free rolling. Here's a free cup of coffee. Stay as long as you like. It's on us. We're going to support you until you get to the point at which it would be reasonable for you to pay something. Well, but first we'll let you drink the free coffee. There is no physical branch. We don't have branches. Exactly. Uh, so there's our, that. Our you clients the tell us, we pay you not to talk to us. So we want to oh, build software best. that's so effortless that you don't need anyone, even though all of our support people, people in, in client support, are licensed as financial advisors or even chartered financial analysts. So mm. the quality of them is off the charts, but they're there if you want them, but you shouldn't need them. So you're 75% less expensive, 0.25 for the fees? For, the, for our investment service, our banking service, uh, we offer a complete checking service with direct deposit, with uh, debit cards. For only uh, $40 a month, flat fee? No fee. Wait, wait, hold on a second. You can go to Wealthfront right now and write checks and get direct deposit from your employer and pay $0.0. Correct. Not only that, Jason, we pay you 0.35% interest on your checking balance. So? No one pays interest on their checking balance. Because they are conniving people who are not thinking long term. You don't have to say this, I will. The financial <laughs> industrial complex are sharks. And you get in the pool with sharks, you're going to get bit and they're going to bleed you. And that's what they're doing. You, you don't want to sit there. Who's going to sit there and move their money out of the checking account and risk the $35 bounce checking fee? So they give you pain if you move the money out of there. And then you get no gain because if you move it into the savings account, they're paying you this de minimis amount. And then they're charging you minimum fees. You said, I'm taking all the goddamn pain out of this. You don't have to think about it. Wait, but there's even, but, but wait, there's more. It's like the Ginsu knife. Yes. So not only did we introduce a complete suite of, of checking service features hmm. so that we're on par with literally any checking account, but uh, we also introduced the first feature from our self-driving money vision, which I've shared with you in the past. Now, and this is the autonomous driving of finance. of finance. This is your big, hairy, audacious goal. BHAG as presented in Jim Collins's book. So we, Correct? So in September, we introduced Autopilot, oh. which monitors uh, uh, one of your financial accounts, either external or Wealthfront. And whenever your balance goes at least $100 above a threshold that you set so you control it, will automatically move that money to the most appropriate place. So it'll move to a Wealthfront cash account where you're on interest, or it can move into one of our investment accounts. And uh, in the near future, very, very near future, it'll even move to third parties. So imagine a bank that would take your excess savings and send it to 
Goldman's Marcus because they paid a higher interest rate. That would mm-hmm. never happen. No. But Wealthfront will move your savings. So we automate all of your savings. So we'll move the money to the most appropriate place depending on your particular situation. So not mm-hmm. only have we taken the fees out of this, we actually to have taken the work out of managing your savings so that we always move your money to the most appropriate place. Now you do all this for free. And the only thing you have to do is instead of paying 1% to your money manager, you guys just charge 1.5%, right? You raise the fees so that <laughs> you, you know, make money. The investor, the, the financial world is, is analogous to whack-a-mole. If any of you have ever played the arcade game where yes. there are all these mold that if one mold comes up, you hit it on the head, you knock it down, it shows up somewhere else. Or two. So, you know, nothing, Historically, nothing has been free. That if mm. something's free, you know you're paying for it somewhere else. It's so free for card example, Monty. Charles Schwab introduced a competitor to our automated investment service that they call intelligent portfolios that they claim is free. There's no advisory fee. Yeah. What okay. they don't tell you is that you must keep a minimum of 10% of your account in cash. Now, if wait our a second, average- so they get the float. They get the float. So God the, damn it. The average return on our account over the last nine years has been over 8%. Very mm. few people have been able to compound at that level over the last nine years. So if you've set aside 10% of your money in cash that doesn't earn any interest, by the way, then Losing, the opportunity you know, costs- all that money, you, 800 bucks. You've lost- uh, 0.8%, which is a hell of a lot more than the quarter of a percent fee that we charge. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And the, all this tilting at windmills, they are getting shaken, aren't they? Yep. They're starting to be like the Lincoln Town Car companies that were taking 50, 60% of the, of the VIG when Uber came along. They're getting a little nervous. They're starting to copy some of your offering. And you guys are just staying true to the original long-term vision of being on the side of, you know, these consumers. Where are you at in terms of the assets under management? And when does this become for you, you know, what are the goals now going into the second decade? Let me say it that way. Well, uh, as of December, we were at about $22 billion and it continues to grow very, very rapidly, but that doesn't capture everything because of all of the services that we do. We also offer really low cost loans, which I know that you're a really big fan of our portfolio. I ask you for this a lot. I need that margin loan. So our portfolio line of credit now only charges 2.4%. I think that it's the fastest, easiest, and cheapest way to borrow money. And it's something that you're automatically enrolled into if you open an investment account of at least $25,000 with us. This is such a great free. This is a feature for people who don't know. When I was on the way up, I was like, hey, Andy, the only thing that's keeping me at Alliance Bernstein, uh, you know, I mean, the thing that I, I mean, you talk about phones. Oh my God. They, they train the financial managers to ask you about your kids, to write down notes about you, the assistant write down. And then every time I want to talk to them, I just want 50 grand to pay down some poker debt or I need 10K to, to pay for some tuition or something. And it's a whole conversation. And then I wind up getting upsold on something. It's making me bonkers. I don't want to go to the Knicks game. I don't want to go to dinner. <laughs> I don't want 45 fucking minutes on the phone. I'm sorry to curse. It's too much time. I want to press a button and get done with it. And then you, and I said, this margin load thing, you said, J. Cal, be patient. We're going to get there. So if you have a half milli or a quarter milli in your account and you just need to 
Jason, 25,000. Wait, only 25. So let's say you got 50 dimes in there. You got 50K. You're coming up in your career, but you need to pay, uh, I don't know, 10K to put down money to move apartments. And you're going to get your deposit back from your previous apartment. Now you you don't want to sell equities and pay capital gains. You need that 10K, but you're going to replenish it or you're going to replenish 5K of it. You can just do a margin loan. Rich people have access to these devices, which is why they don't have to ever sell their equities that are going up and to the right. And this is what's unfair about the financial system in America. Is it not? Well, you know, it's it, that's very subjective. I think that they charge way too much for what they do, but I think they charge so much more because they have to justify the cost of those branches. Mm. And now those branches go away? And everything starts, and are they starting to shutter branches now? Are they looking at this and saying, you know what, we're never going to be able to compete with the wealth fronts of the world? Yeah, but they're not going to do what Netflix did. They're mm, not going to, to kill themselves to, to win the, the new business. They're too scared to do the asymmetrical bet. And let's be honest, to do an asymmetrical bet, you need to have what's called founder authority. You need to be the founder of the company who can walk in there to that board and say, I am Steve Jobs, I am Andy, I am Elon, I am whoever it happens to be, and here's the big, hairy, audacious goal, and here is the asymmetrical bet. If you don't like it, you can vote me off the board, but we're making those bets. These big companies are run by people on what, two-year, four-year contracts? They can't make a BHAG. But you know something, Jason? Uh, Reed is not the founder of Netflix. He just That's acts true. like it. So yes. you have to act like it. You don't have to ne tech necessarily be a founder, but you need mm. to act like a founder. But if you have 4% of the company or 2% of the company and you're like a hired gun at these big giant companies, it is hard to act that way, is it not? And I, I don't think it is. Oh. I think that I think you just have to to walk. I think you have to do what Reed does, which is you start every year on what you're going to bet the company on and you build credibility with your board and you get them to buy into your vision. And if you get them to buy into your vision, even if your stock goes down significantly, if they understood what you were trying to accomplish, they're going to go with you. The problem is that most hired CEOs don't have they're, they're, they don't have the uh, confidence that the founder does that they're not going to get fired. Mm. So they got to come into it with a little more reckless abandon and just be I would say Bob Iger reminds me of this a little bit. He was like a corporate guy, kind of a suit, you know, and he kept getting, you know, ABC Cap Cities, ESPN, whatever. He kept getting like little bits of more responsibility. Then he goes into Disney. I don't know. Did you read Bob Iger, Ride of a Lifetime yet? I haven't, but, I, you know, he has done what the great tech CEOs do, which is to reinvent the business. More often than not, it's through acquisition than it is through internal development. But, you know, what he did with the acquisitions of Pixar and Lucasfilm and Marvel were unbelievable. And those were huge acquisitions that Big a bets. normal CEO wouldn't make. Any one of those bets is a, you want to talk about risk of ruin, it's not going to ruin the company because they're five, $10 billion bets, but it could ruin your ability to remain in that seat. And this but is you know something, by not taking risk in technology, at least you take more risk. So I don't understand uh, companies that don't take risk. You're right. When we watch Salesforce buy Slack, they're giving up 10% of the Salesforce organization. Or when Facebook bought up bought WhatsApp 
I think that was almost 20% of Facebook's value. And when they bought Instagram, maybe it was 2 or 3% of their value. These were big, audacious bets. These are big, hairy, audacious goals. And what you're saying is, listen, if you don't make those bets, other people will. And if they do make those bets, you're going to lose. It's like, you know, when you're in a poker tournament, at a certain point, you have to put the chips in. You have to put the chips in. You have to make a bet. You can't, you can't, you can't win at poker if everybody else is betting constantly and you're not betting ever. You have to, at some point, put some risk on the line. And when you, you look can't at what win he by, did, by playing not to lose. Yes, you can't play on your heels. I mean, he did. I mean, it's, he, he, do you realize Michael Eisner was dead set against buying Pixar? And he was telling Bob Iger, do not do this. Do not do this. I'm, and he tried to fight him on it on buying Pixar. It was like, and he got Steve Jobs to sell him Pixar. Uh, just by calling him on the phone and just checking in with him one day and saying, hey, is there more we could do? I'd love to meet you sometime. This is after Eisner and him were at odds and snipping at each other. And Steve, in the book, he tells the story of Steve Jobs saying, yeah, let's talk right now. And he's like pulling over his like convertible 500SL Mercedes into the driveway and talking to Steve Jobs and then flying up to close the deal. It's If anybody out there knows Iger, please tell him I'm in love with the book and I want to get him <laughs> on the pod. But what, I mean, talk about a ride of a lifetime. And look at the bet he's making on Disney Plus. Audacious. And I mean, he literally yesterday, I don't want to date the timing of this, but because this is our new episode for 2021. But last month, he he announced, I think, nine Star Wars properties. Ashoka, Obi-Wan. I mean, they basically are just saying we're going for it and we're going to put everything into Disney Plus and we'll have 250 million members by 2024. I mean, at, and he raised the price at the same time. So when they get to 10 bucks a month, that's 2.5 billion a month. When they did movies, the top movies would do a billion. So it's almost like having $2 billion movies a month, which is like having $24 billion movies a year. No, $30 billion movies a year. Pretty good, huh? Yeah, it, it, and it's all Netflix is doing, right? Like Netflix empowered this because they saw Netflix buy Daredevil and a bunch of the sort of minor Marvel characters. And I think it, they realized, holy cow, we keep giving Star Wars and Marvel to Netflix. We need to bring those things home. Uh, I want to talk to you as we wrap, because I know you got to go, uh, about um, hiring talent and maintaining talent and what your philosophy is on this. You know, people are always like, oh, you got to buy, you got to get the 10x engineer and, uh, you know, they're one in a hundred or the hundred X engineer, they're one in a thousand. And as you, you know, get older and you've seen a lot, this extreme culture of, you know, 996 that we were celebrating in China, then there's this like sort of wishy-washy millennial, you know, lifestyle first, work to live, European approach, and then you have a culture of freedom and responsibility at Netflix since we're sort of celebrating them on today's pod a bit. And, and they were like, you, you know, listen, you, you've got to bring it and you're going to be basically every January, you're going to be interviewing for, to keep your job <laughs> for the next year. And people thought it was too intense, but the people who are there love it. So what is your philosophy and how do you look at all the different philosophies of building and managing talent? I think that, look, A's hire A's and B's hire C's. 
And A's if higher keep, A's, B's it, higher C's, got it. And if you keep a bunch of B's around, the A's are going to leave because they don't want to work with B's. Mm. And I think that was the great insight that, that Netflix had. So they're, they're actually doing the A's a favor by eliminating the poor performers. So I think a performance culture is a better one, uh, is a better one to keep great talent. I'm really in awe of Facebook in that they have created a performance culture that's kind. You know, people like working there, even though they're held to a very high standard. Mm. And I think that's something really interesting to aspire to, where you hold people to a high standard, but you do it in a kind way versus a cutthroat way. Wait, now, would this be perceived as insincere in some ways in execution? Like, hey, you said you got to hit all these numbers. Sorry, you're just not good enough. Bye. Like, how do you actually manage that? And I do agree with you that Facebook is a kind of enigma to me because people think Facebook is like a cigarette company now. And I know people who work at Facebook. You know people who work at Facebook. The company has absolutely been hated for a decade. And they, people consider the company unethical in many ways. And then the people who work there stay. And I, I, I see people who stay there and then I see other people who are friends of mine leave and they have nothing but bad things to say about Zuckerberg and how he runs the company. But there's this other group that stay. I, I, I don't know. I can't figure out their culture. So how do you execute on something like that, you think? Well, I think you can't be a slave to numbers or metrics. I think you have to use judgment in this as well. So, I, you know, with an engineer, you're not going to evaluate them on lines of code, but you no. can see whether or not they're making an impact. I think you want to hire people with headroom. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is hiring someone because they can do the job. But mm. I think you want someone who can do, who has the capability with mentorship to actually do a lot more than the job. Mm. Interesting. If they so don't you have, like to develop talent that has upside. Yeah. If they don't have upside, then they're going to stagnate. And if they stagnate, it's going to frustrate their top performer colleagues. Mm, that's fascinating because the the criticism uh, or the, the thing that people get confused with when they look at that uh, Netflix culture doc is that, you know, uh, good performance gets a generous severance is yeah. the kind of slogan. No, no, and not good performance. Poor performance gets a generous Severance. Well, I think they were saying like uh, adequate or good performance gets, and you have to be great. I think uh, I'm not. I'm not sure that's true, but I think I poor think maybe performance, they. Yeah, I, maybe they're mythalize. Uh, what are they? Uh, it's a little mythology there. Um, but how do you assess? Everyone that there can't is be great. I, it would be wonderful if you could build a team of all great people, but that's real. And, and I, I, I roll my eyes whenever people say, I have a world-class development team. Well, if you add up the number of companies that supposedly have world-class development teams, it's greater than the population of engineers. So I think there's a normal curve to every profession and everyone can't be superb. Yes. And just to be clear, it's Adequate performance gets a generous severance. Thank package. you. Adequate. That's, we found yeah. a word. Yeah, and and this is why words matter, right? It's so interesting. I love words because adequate 
is if you were to say somebody you did an adequate job people would be like okay i'm going to keep the job i did the job you asked me i did an adequate job and what they're saying is you know what we're looking like you are andy for people who have upside and people who take on more responsive people and people who are ambitious and i think there's also a window of time correct me if i'm wrong if you've had this experience in life which is people can be exceptional performers but at a certain point the marriage runs its course the relationship runs its course they've done the five years they're bored they're burnt out they want to do something else and then they become either adequate toxic but they've been around so long how do you deal with that how do you deal with somebody who's been a high performer for four years and then they they kind of go from that fifth sixth gear down to second third gear or they put it in neutral and they're just they're coasting on previous performance and now they're adequate you know we want I learned an amazing lesson from Coach K, the uh, Duke basketball coach, when I was fortunate enough to be introduced to him at an internet conference that my partner Bill Gurley from Benchmark put on. Good friend of mine, big friend of the pod. Yeah. Yeah. Bill was, a, as you know, was a college basketball player and he adores Coach K. So he had him uh, do the keynote for a conference that he put on. And I got to spend, I and a couple of others got to spend an hour with him before the keynote. And I asked him how he, and this was 20 years ago, how did he deal with one and done basketball players? You know, recruiting mm -hmm. someone for just one year. And he said, you know, I want to do what's best for them. Does this sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and he said, uh, I've built a reputation over the years that my, uh, alumni players will tell the recruit, if you're ready for the NBA, Coach K will tell you. And if you're not, he'll be honest with you and you should listen to him. But well, he's going to try to- reputation building. Right. And so he's going to try to get you there. Not everybody gets there, but he's going to try to get you there. After all, you know, later on, he was the coach of the Olympic team. This is the guy who knows college and professional basketball players and what it takes. So his view was, look, if a kid's ready to go to the NBA, I'm not going to hold him back because it would be better for my basketball program. By doing right by my players, I'm going to benefit by recruiting other great players in the future. And he said the same goes for coaches. And this is what completely changed my management philosophy. He said, my whole goal with my assistant coaches is to turn them into head coaches for division one programs, which is the, the uh, elite programs in college basketball. Mm. Think about it. If one of my assistant coaches gets to be a head coach at a division one program, think of the line of people that are going to want to take that person's job. Mm. I'm going to get an incredible group of people who are going to apply for that job. And so he said, I'm going to keep trying to train these people to be head coaches because it improves my talent pool. It can make my life a little more difficult if a coach leaves me after two or three years, who I've put a lot of money into training, money and time, but so be it. And so wow. that, that such a great philosophy. It's such an amazing philosophy. So it completely changed my attitude. So what I constantly preach at Wealthfront, and unfortunately, some employees have a hard time believing it. I say, look, we're, you're not going to spend your entire career working for Wealthfront. No. But we want to help you achieve 
your career aspirations. Mm. So be honest with us and we'll, we'll help you achieve your goals. So if two or three years into it, you're just not as interested anymore, or you want to develop another skill that you can't develop here, tell us and we'll help you find that job. Through our wow. relationships, we'll help you find that job. And the vast majority of people actually take us up on this, but uh, the ones that don't lose out. It, it's better for the company and it's better for them if we're all on the same program. See, I love this philosophy. I have a similar one, but I, it's, you know, I'm still young in my career. I don't have the same Zen level. I'm kind of in my like Obi-Wan Anakin phase as a Jedi where I still have a little anger. I still have a little of that, <laughs> you know, edginess to me where I'm not as sort of, you know, gray here at Obi-Wan or Yoda like you, Andy. But I tell people, if you want to be on good terms with me and you want to leave, here's the path. You hire, you train your replacement. And then I go to war for you, getting you whatever you want. And I relentlessly sort you forever. However, if you cross <laughs> me, I will be a Sith Lord, Dark Knight, Darth Vader forever. I well, I'm not sure I'm going to go from there, Jason, but I'm not going to give the person a good reference because I put trust in them and mm. they didn't return it. Correct. I had some people were backstabbing me in my own organization and I went Darth Vader. Kicked him out of the organization and then, oh, you, oh a reference comes in? Uh, oh, you know what? I'm, I never give a bad reference is what I say to people, but I'm, I can't give a reference in this instance. The, the challenge it. is it's hard for people to believe that if they raise their hand and say they'd like to leave, that they won't be fired and it will, won't work against them because yeah. they're most millennials take a prefer advice from their friends to advice from experts and their friends. I find reinforce the idea that you shouldn't do that. That's too big of a risk to take to share. They're dopey. They're dopey friends. You know, it's like if that'd be like going to relationship advice to your friend who's divorced or has a dysfunctional marriage. And then they're like, you know, like you, 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 you've been in these conversations. Five guys are at a dinner and then one guy's just got a complete disaster of a marriage or a relationship history. And he's the one giving advice to everybody on their marriages. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's not the guy you want to go to or gal, whatever the situation may be. I had somebody steal from me. Can you imagine stealing databases from me? Like, what do you think will happen? I am going to like, take out my lightsaber and start swinging it recklessly at everything in my path. It's crazy. But you have a little more equanimity. And I try. Let me tell you. Uh, Give me the rage. I didn't Will, when I was younger. Give it to <laughs> me. Yeah, I'm, this is the transition I'm going through. And I'll tell you, in the story of the person who double-crossed me, threatened me, tried to extort money from me, yada, 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 they finally kind of apologized. And then I gave them a great reference after not giving references. They immediately got a job. Person wrote me back, thank you. So I, I squashed it. I squashed the beef because I don't want to accumulate bad feelings for myself. Uh, but tell me about Dark Andy. The dark <laughs> moments where you performed suboptimally. You can obscurify the other parties or not. But tell me about those dark moments where you went to the dark side and you regret it and what you learned from it. Well, you know, you're a Scorpio. 
as am I, and Scorpios are vengeful. And I think earlier in my life, I was a lot more vengeful that if you crossed me, I wanted to get back at you. Uh, uh, I, I really worked hard to try to expunge that from my character because I don't think any positive energy comes from that. And that's, uh, I was only able to do that with the uh, advice and counsel of my incredible wife who you've met. And I also benefited amazingly from uh, having a partner for many, many years named Bruce Dunleavy, who is phenomenal in this dimension. He never lets issues like this get in the way. And so having him as a role model made a huge positive impact on me. Okay, but hold on a second. Somebody crosses you. The word gets out on the street. I know how guys like you think. I know how I think. You can't be the sucker who gets rolled. Because once somebody rolls you, you the, the chances of another person rolling you or people believing that you can be rolled becomes a thing. So, so sometimes I, if smiling, somebody wants- I'm smiling yeah. because I'm about to share with you a Bruce Dunleavy philosophy that you're going to think is nuts. Okay, but, let me hear it. But has worked unbelievably well for me. Okay. And that is always put the gun in the other person's hand. Oh, so, sweet Jesus. What are you talking about? I never let that lightsaber stays in my hand on my belt. Those guys, I, that's my number one rule. I don't see never that. lose so your lightsaber. I knew I was going to get you on this. So Bruce, when Bruce uh, works with an entrepreneur, he will and has to negotiate the deal. In almost every case, he will say, if let's say, Jason, you were the person on the other side, he said, he'll okay. say, Jason, you tell me what's fair and I'll do it. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> it's literally like Obi-Wan Kenobi turning the lightsaber off and saying, if you strike me down, I'll come back 10 times stronger. Now, the, the logic is that for most people, they don't want to be seen as overreaching. So they're hmm. going to do what's fair, maybe even a slightly bit unfair to them. Hmm. Now, if somebody comes back and asks for a little bit more than market or fair, Bruce is going to say fine. But if you fire the gun at him, he just won't work with you. Ooh, so disengagement yes. is his is the price you pay. Is the price you pay. And let Ooh. me tell you, that is a huge penalty because getting to work with Bruce Dunleavy is an amazing experience as you will hear from anyone who has ever worked with him. And, you know, and I so, had this happen to me, this very interesting philosophy, because I had one founder. I'm going to tell you the situation. You tell me if I done leave it or not. This founder said, uh, we had the right to do half of the next round. Like, a, you know, a, a right in a document. We, we, we took the risk on this round. We asked to have half the next round. Founder calls me. Hey, J. Cal, you were the first to commit to this new round. You put down the 500K, uh, but... Since you put down the 500K, we filled out the other 500K because you're Jason Calacanis and people follow your investments, da da da, da. And now we're at 1.5. We want you to go down to 250. And I said, wait a second. Let me just make sure I'm clear. Because we committed to the last round and we seeded the company and we committed first to this round, now these other new people are going to cut our participation down by half. He's like, yeah, but because the, I mean, these people are amazing. Like, I, we got Steve Case, and like, I was like, Steve Case, a friend of mine. That's a big deal. You got Steve Case, da da da. Uh, but you know, we we want to keep our right. And he literally is calling me over and over and over again. I get to the third call, and I realize 
if this person thinks that screwing me over is a good idea, well, why am I in business with this person? Because this is going to continue. So I said to him, I said, it's you know what? It's a brilliant philosophy, isn't it? It is. I, I, done, I Bruce done leaving it. I didn't realize it. And I literally took the lightsaber and I handed it to him. And I said, you know what? Um, we'll sell our share since you have so much demand. We will give our 500K back. And of the previous investment, we will sell half of that into this round. So we own 6% of the company. I will sell 3% of the company and take the other 3% as idiot insurance in case you actually get this to the promised land. We make 4X on our original investment. We have the free roll for the other 3%. And I got this idiot out of my life. That's the Dunleavy strategy. It, let me tell you, you sleep so much better at night. I, you know a, what? I do because this founder was so annoying. It's a much better way to live. And, and I preach it to all those around me. Uh, my students will uh, repeat it to me. The people in my company repeat it to mm. me. It's hard for some people to do to give trust to get trust. Most people want you to earn trust, but it's a much nicer. I find it to be a much nicer way to live. But you couldn't do that. Tell trust. me that story about that vindictiveness you had when you were young. You have that story. You're debating if you could tell me. <laughs> Come on. I'll screw it You can take out some names. You can, you can polish it a little bit. Tell me you know, when you did the, the wrong thing. Cured thing. Me, I'll tell you a story that cured me of it. Great. That's what I want to hear. Uh, the, the, but it wasn't something that I did. It was what the other person did. Okay. When I was about 30, I got to lead uh, a round of... Uh, of highly sought after semiconductor company. And back then we had syndicates of three or four venture firms. But in this case, there were six people who had committed. And uh, someone from one of the most well-renowned venture firms uh, was being cut back. Now, mm. the, the logic that I had to use was the board members would get a bigger uh, opportunity to invest than the non-board members. They put in more, put in more work, work in, which I think is a very, very fair algorithm. Totally valid. And he said, uh, and so the partner who was with this premier firm who wasn't going on the board, who was cut back to half of what the board members got, mm -hmm. called me up and he said, uh, you cannot do that to this firm. Mm. He said, if you do that to, he said, do you not realize who you're dealing with? Uh -oh. if, you, if you do that to us, I will make sure to ruin your career. He literally Whoa. said this to me. And As I don't want to use this. For, you're 32 years old. I'm 30 years old. And, and he oh said, Oh my God, a little pee pee in the pants. I will, I will make, and if you knew who this was, it would really make you pee pee in the pants. I will make it my career goal oh. to ruin you. What? I know who it is. I'm not saying. <laughs> gonna, then, you're going to whisper it in my ear later. You're going to tell me on the, tell tell me on the chat. Okay. So, so I, I held firm. Uh, they did their piece. Uh, it turned out to be a very, it, luck would have it. It turned out to be a very successful company. Mm. And then about 15 years later, we, he had com uh, completely forgotten. He did this to a lot of people, by the way. This was his MO. So I, I knew to expect it. Sharp elbowed. We were in a, a, an investment together in a company and I'll never forget this. And, and, uh, I made a point about the way we allocate equity in this, that was a contentious issue. And he said to me, 
you know something? You should be a partner of my firm. I love the way you think. <laughs> it's so funny when people act crazy and they don't remember it. He has I always no have recollection that fear. whatsoever of I of live with that fear at 50. People come up to me like, you don't remember me. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, no, here it goes. I'm like, what did I do? <laughs> oh, it's so funny. <laughs> I put it, I listen, I put my best guest in the Zoom chat. Take a look. Don't tell anybody. Just give me a, am I in the zone? You can click on that link. No, no. Okay. But that was, that, he actually didn't used to do that. No. I, I know he was iconoclastic. Yes. I, all right. I can say who I guess since it's not him. I put Tom Perkins, rest in peace. He was iconoclastic was he. because he was just, yeah, he, he was an egomaniac. Let's face it. Perkins was, you know, he was a little ego. I think he got wackier in his older age because oh. I think he created modern venture capital. I think we all owe an enormous debt of gratitude to Tom Perkins because he created the model that we're still pursuing today. Interesting. And then, yeah, I mean, he MBA from Harvard, went to MIT and uh, was on the, uh, I mean, wasn't he, was he famous for being on the HP board? I think he was well compact. He was the the chairman of compact. Yeah, which I think was bought by bought by HP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he went a little wacky in the in the old. He went wacky after he retired. But when when he was in the game, boy, you know, you talk to John Doerr, he reveres him. Yeah, see, that's the problem with the press. I think sometimes they get somebody who gets eccentric when they're older. And they're just like, okay, this is going to be page views. Let's just get this person. And then this is what happens when you get old and you retire. You become, you go from being hyper relevant to being completely forgotten and irrelevant in 10 years. This is what happens. This is the nature of human existence. You, you were the top TV star in the 90s or 80s or musician. And then you're playing bar mitzvahs or, <laughs> you know, you can't, nobody, everybody wants you at their keynote and then nobody wants your keynote. And then some journalists find out, oh, Tom Perkins is available to do an interview with anybody. And then they start asking him questions. He starts saying crazy stuff. And it was actually sad to watch. It was sad it, to it watch. It really was sad to watch because... You know, back when we invested in hardware companies, he was the one who really, I mean, I remember my friends who worked at Kleiner Perkins would, would cite his advice. You know, you want high technical risk, low market risk, the kind of people that you would choose, the way that you would structure deals. All these things were innovations from Tom Perkins. Yeah. I mean, he was, wow, eight billion he was worth at the peak. And then he went and uh, I never actually read his, he, he wrote a memoir, huh? Captain of Capitalism, I'm seeing here. Uh, and then he did the documentary Something Ventured. Oh, no, he was featured in that, yeah. He was featured, yeah. which was a really interesting documentary. Yeah, it's really interesting. How do you think about the, you know, let's just call it what it is. We are all sitting here and uh, there's a clock ticking, right? We're all on the road to the eventual outcome of humanity, which is we, we pass. We go. You think about that, I think, when you hit 50 or some point in your 50s, like, okay, I'm counting backwards now. You're getting up. You're going to work every day. You obviously have a sense of purpose. You have this positivity. How do you think about your legacy or do you even bother thinking about that? I don't think about it. I just try to do good things every day and, and good things result. See, I think that's very... 
that that is such good wisdom for people. You have to enjoy the journey. If you're thinking too much about the past and the mistakes you made, or you're too fearful about the future or concerned status games or whatever, you, you just miss what's happening every day, which is the wonderful nature of going to work and enjoying the people you work with and enjoying what you do. And let me tell you something. Yesterday was uh, a Thursday. Today's a Friday. And I was just thinking, my pal Andy's coming on the podcast. It's one of my favorite things every year when we do this. We have you on the pod, we talk, and all of a sudden I look up and it's 90 minutes <laughs> or it's an hour and 20 minutes. I mean, we could just go on forever. I feel like I have 50 more questions, but I am going to stop we'll this. We'll do it next I year. I hope you'll have me back next year. Andy, as long as you and I are on this goddamn planet, we're doing it every year. We're doing our year in review, our year looking forward. Wisdom from Andy Ratcliffe, founder of Wealthfront, creator of Product Market Fit, exceptional human being, incredible thinker, great mentor, great human being, and, and uh, co-founder of Benchmark. I could go on and on. Everybody go to wealthfront.com, open an account, have your kids open an account, have your cousin, have your mom and dad open an account, whoever you know, have them open an account, open an account for them now, put the first thousand dollars in, it's a mitzvah you can do for them <laughs> so that they stop getting ripped off and they get a better education. I never even asked you about all these new day traders and millennials that Robinhood, another investment of mine has inspired. Let me end on that. What do you, what's your advice for that generation? They're getting very excited. They're buying Airbnb. They're buying Uber. They're they're buying weird shit like Nikola, which is a complete and utter fraud and disaster, according to many people. We're seeing these SPACs. They have variability in the quality. Let's be generous here. Obviously, the ones my friend Chamath are doing are serious companies. Other people, maybe not so serious. And then you have uh, Dave Portnoy, who was just on the pod uh, from Barstool Sports, doing performance art of buying stocks. He's obviously gambling. He's super clear about that. But it did inspire a lot of people to get in there. And maybe trade options or try different ways of getting involved. That's a good thing, isn't it? The research is really clear, Jason. It's not a good thing. Well, I mean, it's a good thing that people are getting interested in finance. It is. is but the, the research is really clear that you want a diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds. That's the way to maximize your wealth over time. It's not as fun. So take a portion of your of your money and, and have fun with it. But yes. Recognize that it's fun. You know, our chief investment officer, Bert Malkiel, really invented the index fund with his book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, one of the most influential books in finance. And I'll never forget, we once hosted an event for, for our clients in the Bay Area where they got to meet Bert. And somebody raised their hand and asked Bert a question. He said, do you own any stocks? This is the guy, you know, he was on the Vanguard board for 27 years. He's the biggest proponent of passive investing you'll ever find. And he was asked, do you, do you own stocks? And he said, yes. And I also like to go to the dog track because yes. I, I find it entertaining. Of course. Of course. Please, you should do it and should have fun with it and learn about it. But it should not be the, the, the foundation of how you invest. This is, I think, the big lesson. I think in part of the path, to understanding and financial literacy is making some mistakes. And you know, if you're, if you're buying and selling stocks in a market that's on a tear, you feel like a genius, just like when you get aces three times in a night and you clean everybody's clock at the poker table, or you hit your set three times or whatever it is. And then you come back to the poker table and you start playing for a couple of years and then you realize, Oh my God, I know nothing. I got lucky that first time out. 
And I had Dave on the pod and he's like, listen, Jake, I'm an idiot. I'm just out here playing and I'm making a joke that I'm better than Warren Buffett. And they put me on CNBC. This is all a joke. And I was like, I know it's a joke because you said you saw a deer out on your lawn in Nantucket. So you bought John Deere. And you're saying stocks only go up, which stocks only go up is a historical fact that overall stocks have gone up as an index, which is the point of Wealthfront. So if you open a Robinhood account, please do that. Have some fun with 10% of your money, 20% of money, whatever you like to gamble. But please open at the same time your Wealthfront account and then have that bedrock, that foundation so that you are secure and you're not getting ripped off by these crazy fees that these crazy <laughs> banks are doing. Andy, uh, just always wonderful uh, to see you uh, and talk to you. I hope when uh, this pandemic passes, you're taking the vaccine the second it becomes available, correct? You, you bet. Okay, so you're not like from Marin where these crazy people with graduate degrees who are worth millions of dollars and live in $5 million homes don't believe in vaccines for some insane reason? I don't understand. I don't understand it. You, it's like if you go north of the Golden Gate Bridge, you go north of San Francisco, you lose your mind. You get a bunch of money and you lose your, but your, you have your belief views. in science. What's that? But you have beautiful views. You got incredible <laughs> views. I mean, you, you, you're in Tiburon and you're looking and you're on top of the world. You're on Mount Tam. You're, you're seeing these beautiful vistas and you forget that vaccines and science work and that we don't have pandemics and people are not dying of the plagues because of vaccines. Please, for the love of God, take your goddamn vaccine so Andy and I can go get some ramen or sushi or something <laughs> in the new, in sometime in 2021. You think it's all over April, May? I, I don't think that we'll have the distribution of uh, vaccines broad enough by then, unfortunately. So you think we're, when are you and I going to like a, a Warriors game? Well, I don't, think, I don't think I'm going to get a, I, I don't think I will have the opportunity to get a vaccine until May, June at the earliest. Mm, I thought, yeah, you know what? You're 62, Andy. I think you get it in March, April. No, I'm, I'm actually 62 sucks because I'm not 65. So I'm in the, I'm in the last group. <laughs> I have that crazy idea. I think all this morality, we have to rethink a lot of the morality we have. You know what a challenge trial is by chance? No. In science. So this is crazy. The challenge trial is when you actually introduce something dangerous to a person to see how they respond to it. So in the case of the coronavirus, you would get 100 people. You would give them, you know, 50 of them one vaccine. Or let's say 33 of them one vaccine, 33 another vaccine, and 33 um, uh, no vaccine, placebo. Then you actually give them all on purpose the same exact quantity of coronavirus and the same exact delivery mechanism, and then you watch. Now, this is considered unethical because you're putting people at risk. But the risk is much less than flying in a helicopter, a motorcycle, deep sea scuba diving, or going to war in Iraq or any other war. But we, or the science community, I should say, do not allow challenge trials as a blanket rule. And then all this pain and massive suffering has occurred. But we allow astronauts to go out into space with, you know, I think if you were on the space shuttle, I think there, I think nine people died in the history of the space shuttle. My producer will look it up for me to make me look smart while we're here. But, you know, we had two space shuttles explode tragically, one on the way up, one on the way down. And we lost a half dozen people in each instance, I think, or four or five or six. And we celebrate those people. We could have solved and had this vaccine out in month three or four. I'm talking about March or April. 
because that's when they had the vaccine ready. They could have done the challenge trial and we would have had this vaccine being delivered in May or June. We'd be through this if we had done challenge trials. And the UK has now approved a challenge trial for punchline this month, January 2021, when the vaccine is already completed and been through the you know typical trial process. It's crazy, right? I'm, I'm not sure I can agree with you on that one. Okay. <laughs> you don't like the idea of introducing. See, I think that we let this kid, uh, Alex Honnold, well, I desperately want to have on the podcast. We let him climb, you know, mountains with no rope. And we give him a million dollar sponsorship from the North Face. I think we should get a hundred kids who are low risk the next time this happens, let them introduce this and give them a hundred thousand dollars. And God forbid, if they were to pass, give their families $10 million. I know it creates economic inequality and there's all these kind of issues, but if they had informed consent and it wasn't like they were doing it out of some destitute situation, but they wanted to be heroes, like Alex wants to be climbing a, you know, mountain with no rope or astronauts want to be, you know, 15, 19 deaths. Incredible. Wow. For the space shuttle. I don't know how many missions that was. Anyway, you disagree. On this one, You yes. don't want... All right. Challenge trials for another day. Yes. Uh, okay. Everybody tune in January 2022 when Andy will be back on the program. I've decided unilaterally that you're the first guest of every year going forward. Thank you. Oh, that's quite an honor. That's it. We start the year with Andy's <laughs> wisdom and that carries us at least until June or July. We may need to get a booster shot. We may need an Andy booster shot over the summer. We'll see how bad 2021 is, but I'm hoping everybody has a great year. Welcome to 2021, everybody. And let's give it up one more time for Andy Ratcliffe. Thank you. Follow Jason. him on Twitter, A A A R A C H L E F F. I don't know if he tweets that often. Uh, but most importantly, get your family on the wealth front right now. Everybody in your family needs to be on wealthfront.com so they stop getting ripped off. We'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. <laughs>